Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak with all kinds of founders and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today on the show is Alex Packham. Alex is a serial entrepreneur and the founder and CEO at ContentCal that was acquired by Adobe in late 2021. During his ContentCal journey, he raised over 10 million pounds for the company, built the business to 3,000 plus customers globally, and grew top line 150% year on year. In this one, we discuss Alex's experience raising capital from angels versus VCs, what he's learned about creating the right pitch deck, format, number of slides, etc. The sale to Adobe, of course, the importance of mindset and energy as a founder, and much more. And with that, let's get to it. Here's my great chat with Alex Packham. Let's go back to the early days of Content Cal, which I think started back in 2014, but your entrepreneurship experience goes all the way back to 2010. Do I have that right? Yeah, give or take. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think the entrepreneurial experience probably goes back to when I was 10 years old, if I'm honest with you, <laughs> like going all the way back. It's very typical kind of, you know, as you were growing up, fascinated by, I can't really say business, but like, you know, the concept of entrepreneurship and, and just, you know, selling stuff, to be perfectly honest with you, when I was really young. But yeah, Content Cal originally started in 2014, originally actually started as an agency first. So set up effectively a social media marketing agency when social media marketing was still relatively new. And that was typically, you know, doing content creation, running ads, all the stuff a lot of agencies obviously do nowadays for brands of all shapes and sizes. So really big ones right the way through to, you know, it's much smaller kind of SMB, SM, SMEs. And that's where Content Cal was kind of born out of. But 2010, I think I was more working in corporates at that point, give or take. So if I, if I could like circle back to where I got to with the agency piece, I ran social media for the UK's biggest cinema chain for a couple of years first. And that was like a great experience, just learning the kind of social media marketing game um, in a corporate environment. Did two years at a company over here in the UK called B Sky B Sky, which is a big cable TV provider. And again, ran social media for a, a part of their business, which was kind of like a Netflix competitor, but it was really early in the Netflix days coming to the UK and Sky, this cable provider created their own competitor version. So we were building up the kind of social presence for them. And that's when I made the leap of faith from kind of doing the corporate thing for about four, four and a half years in total into kind of entrepreneur land. So it uh, feels like a long time ago now. But the agency quickly grows, is my understanding. And then you merge 
your agency with ContentCal and then pivot to this B2B SaaS model. Did you make that move because you wanted to increase the odds of getting funded? Like, what was your thinking behind that? Yeah, I think so. When I started the agency, there was clearly, in in the UK anyway, it was still, like I said, in quite the early days of social media marketing being taken really seriously. We got great traction with two large, well, the two large clients I'd work for, but then a lot of other businesses, again, both big and very small. And fundamentally, we were just able to grow very quickly because most companies just needed help in some way, shape or form. And that might have been like complete outsourced management of their social presence, or that could have been like consulting work, or in some instances, just, you know, running advertising for them, etc. And so, yeah, that business was, you know, it was like most service businesses, profitable, had a team. Um, We ran it as an agency, had a great culture, had a great environment, etc. The pivot was really about scale. So we had prototyped Content Cal in the background in the agency and started using it with the agency clients and got really good feedback that this product was, you know, really useful, both internally for our team, so they could automate a lot of stuff, um, but collaborate with that client more effectively. And then on the client side, it was really easy if they could log into one dashboard and they could see everything they needed to know about their social presence and kind of that was it really for them it was kind of a low effort but high return you know investment in terms of understanding how their social presence was being built and really i think once we got the like the level of positive feedback the momentum from those clients and then started to get totally independent customers for content cal so you know nothing to do with our agency it was when we started to get repeatability, if you like, with that, it made me really think, okay, to build a big business of scale, software is obviously a much more scalable proposition than service businesses. You know, we've got to make a pivot at some point. And it, and it didn't happen overnight. You know, that took about two years to really get right. But I think it was more, the opportunity was very clear for the taking. We, we'd started to hit product market fit. And it was like a once in a lifetime decision, right? You know, building an agency, you can do, you know, some you could start that tomorrow, theoretically. It requires very little capital up front to get that going. But when you've got enough positive feedback, like I say, and momentum behind a software product, it almost feels too good to be true. So you've kind of got to double down on it. So it was really going after the opportunity, basically. Who was the target customer? What was the value proposition with ContentCal? What did that look like when you guys built that first prototype? Yeah, the first version, actually, we really thought it was going to be um, powerful for really large organizations because that was my background predominantly. So things like having approval flows on content and collaborating as big teams on content and visualizing it so you know lots of people could see the different elements of the social media plan or something like that because you know lots of big businesses had big processes behind the scenes to produce a simple tweet which sounds crazy but you know some of the approval flows that go into some accounts is crazy at the end of the day 10 10 approvals or something like that on a single tweet for example so we initially tried to target it at that market I think what we very quickly realized was that it was it was suitable for that that market but typical with enterprise sales you know you've got long sales cycles you're kind of replacing another product our product had a lot of the good stuff but not all of the stuff uh, you know a large brand would have needed so there's clear gaps that we you know needed to fill and then when we started um, seeing traction and started to trying to sign up smaller businesses they totally got it it was like a revolutionary product to them. They were n- normally just using a spreadsheet or a Word doc. So, you know, this was like their first step into buying social media software. And the traction was just significantly faster and more receptive. And so it was quite an interesting journey to go on. You know, that took like six months to figure out. I'm a bit longer thinking about it. But like, yeah, ri- originally positioned for that big enterprise business. And then, yeah, just through the the hustle and the, the game of trying to sell it, we learned that actually the small business was the target customer, basically. What about this notion of incubating a startup within your startup? So having this idea to pilot something within your existing business 
and seeing if that could be a standalone business in effect on its own. Do you feel like that's a practice that more founders should experiment with? I do, actually. I think so. I've, I've talked a lot about if I would go back and do it again, would I do it that way? And the truthful answer is no, because I did it by accident more than anything else. I think like when we built Content Cal and when we were selling it in the really early days, yes, we were thinking there might be a chance this could become the business. But it was very month to month. We weren't thinking about it as a sort of strategic plan. And so we had an agency, like I said, that was a pretty thriving business. And then I would say we had like a great opportunity and a little bit of a distraction at the start with Content Cal. And that very quickly became the other way around, if that makes sense. However, if you built a business, whether it was an agency or a labs type business or something like that, with a very specific proposition that you do incubate like tech startups, you know, if you really planned it well, had the resources in place and things like that, I think that's a great business model because I think, you know, if you've got like a, like I said, a sort of service offering or something like that, you learn loads from clients because you're solving problems for them. They're really engaged in the process because they're paying you. So you kind of get like almost like paid for research and development for what ever to do that again I'd really make it a purpose-driven business you know we actually do spin out 10 brands a year or something like that rather than having like an agency that slowly accidentally and then on purpose pivots because it was a kind of unique organic journey which was a lot of fun very stressful at the time as well but I think you'd get a better business result if you planned it basically yeah how are you managing resources and your team are are they confused with what's going on are they splitting time between the agency and content cal in those early days yeah, I think culturally that was our biggest challenge. We had people that had joined an agency and were doing great work and really passionate about social media marketing and things like that. And then you had people that had joined a software business. They were equally passionate, equally driven, etc., but about slightly different stuff. You know, building software for social media versus doing social media marketing, although they're very similar, you know, by subject matter. The two practices are totally different at the end of the day. And that's where our biggest challenges were, you know, getting people aligned, as you said, like um, sharing resources and things like that. You know, that we, we did that for two years. And, and you know, I look back and there were, there were many really good parts about it that we didn't realize at the time, like everybody did customer service. You know, everybody actually wanted to do customer service. So they actually learned loads from different customers of different shapes and sizes. You know, we had product development sessions where we could literally bring in clients agency teams affect our own team and software developers into the same room with no effort and have a really collaborative brainstorm but you know it didn't feel contrived or engineered if that makes sense it was organic and so there's some phenomenal benefits to it culturally when you then try and like build the business out of it you do have to be one or the other in my opinion like you're either a kind of software business or you are very much an agency business and that's where we had to like you know place our bets at some point in the journey. Okay, so what's the next chapter of this thing? Like once Content Cal begins to take off, are you thinking about shutting down the agency side? Do you divest that side of the business? Do you completely focus on Content Cal? What happens? We slowly pivoted people either into slightly different roles from the agency into the software business. So everybody had jobs that needed to have jobs and things like that. And then we started to outsource slash freelance with someone who we had already had a really good relationship with, who actually had her own agency actually at the time to basically take over the agency effectively. But it was under our brand. So we kept the revenue. We kind of kept the content cal brand, you know, personal relationships that I had maybe, for example, you know, we still maintain those and things like that. But we basically found a solution that was really neat for that 
part of the business, which didn't, you know, cause too much frustration or pain for anybody involved. And what that, you know, enabled us to do really was say, right, that kind of part of the business is now actually really well resourced and really well run. But from the internal team's perspective, it doesn't require, it didn't really require any work realistically from much of us, if at all. And therefore, everybody internally was completely focused on building content, Cal. And and that was a big mental positive for us. You know, having everyone 100% focused on one goal, it made a dramatic difference to our momentum. And you end up raising ultimately 10 million pounds, I believe, for Content Cal during those first few rounds of funding. But prior to that, were you bootstrapping this through the agency? Yeah, largely bootstrapped to a certain extent. So for the first, again, couple of years, we had some small amounts of funding because I set up two separate businesses. So they were actually structured differently at the very start in terms of how you set them up in in the UK. And so we raised a little bit of seed funding for the software business because, you know, you need some capital to get it off the ground. But most of the agency, if not all of the agency profits, pretty much went into kind of funding the gap, if you like. And then in this kind of mini growth stage before we got to any VC funding, as we were getting more and more momentum in the software business, luckily the angel investors we had bought on board totally got it. They were like, you're running a service business. You've you've merged them at some point in the journey. We know you've got a software business as well. They were quite happy to actually do almost like a, a drip feed approach to investment, which if I look back again, I wouldn't do it that way again, but it really worked for us at the time. So, you know, we've got this much traction. Hey guys, right, we want to go out and raise half a million or a million or something like that from a group of angels because we had all of the kind of right things in place immediately, effectively, because the business was actually running and we were generating revenue from day one, it was very easy to say, hey, here you go, here's the kind of collective half a million from kind of like an angel syndicate or something like that. And we probably did four what I would call real angel rounds of kind of 500 to a million pound tranches. And then pre-pandemic is when we got our first VC investment, which was a different story. (laughs) You've said in the past that one of the biggest uphill battles or the biggest challenges that you faced as a founder was actually raising your first big round. Talk to me a little bit about that and, and how did this come together? Yeah, I think what I learned in the process was raising from angels and raising from a VC fund are two very different things. You know, angel investors will make their own decisions based on personal circumstances, next to no due diligence quite oftenly. And it is a, you know, quite often it's a bet at the end of the day. And there's a there's some great tax incentives and things like that for high net worths in the UK that really incentivize them to invest in, in startups. So you've kind of got this personal angle with angels where they can make the decision quickly. They can bring in a couple of co-investors with them and you can do rounds pretty fast. And, you know, like I said, with quite small amounts of due diligence, if they really believe in you. With a VC, as we all know, you know, that's a financially regulated institutional investor with other people's money under management. So they have investment mandates, they have due diligence processes, investment committees, um, they have, you know, things that they want to invest in and things that they don't, and tons of other stuff that can influence the decision. And it takes longer, you know, because of those processes and because of all the kind of hoops you have to go through, which once you know it, you know it. But before that, you don't realistically. And we went out to raise, I think it was about two, two and a half million pounds in our first like institutional round of funding. We did a mini roadshow. You know, we met loads of people pre-COVID. So it was all face to face as well, which I almost can't believe <laughs> we did that because you can't meet enough people in reality kind of doing that, whether you're traveling internationally, going to San Francisco to meet an investor or kind of just meeting people in, in London locally for us, for example. But like you realize very quickly as you go into that process that you've got to 
change the pitch. You've got to think about the business differently. You've got to have the right presentations and information and financial models and all that kind of stuff. And I think we learned that the hard way in going out to raise the VC round. But when we did learn it, we then applied it. And then when we had kind of follow-up meetings with investors in the sort of second cycle, if you like, of the roadshow, we were able to present the business in a really different way. And confidence, I think, just matters so much in the story that you tell Obviously, the business fundamentals need to be good, but that whole piece really ties into any funding round. So, yeah, in a nutshell, we went out and it took about six months to raise the v- the first VC check. And we, we landed that in De- December 2019, but the funds didn't actually land until... February 2020, just before everything went crazy. So it was kind of good timing in many ways because we actually got our round done. You know, that was just before the markets all fell apart, but bad timing in that the world completely changed, obviously, for obvious reasons after that. So very different experience, basically, raising kind of institutional capital. And my understanding is that you did a lot of preparation leading up to your investment rounds with a coach which you occasionally hear, but it's, it's not something that I would say is, is super common, but very cool. Let's dive in. So how transformational was that experience and what kind of impact did it have, do you think, on your ability to pitch effectively? Yeah, I think for me, it was completely game changing. And now being on the other side, investing in some businesses as well, I totally see it as well, because I think raising capital, whether you're raising a million or a hundred million, the storytelling element of it and how you construct that narrative to pitch to those individuals or even just have a meeting with certain people, your understanding of how to answer questions confidently and communicate really, really well and also not be afraid to say, I don't know the answer to something, but I can go back and look into it because we've got statistics and things like that. The whole construction of what I could call like the investor communications piece or investor relations, you would call it if you were publicly traded, is not something that I think many entrepreneurs in the early stage of their business really even think about, to be perfectly honest. It's kind of like, I've got to go out and raise some money. Uh, let's go meet some people and let, let's 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 prep. Whereas, you know, if you polish a pitch, which is, you, you know, what the business is, what industry it's in and the size and shape and the growth of that, why you're the best team that you're going to tackle this because you're subject matter experts or you've got the experience, etc. You know, what are the big three points and big three benefits that your product is going to make the difference of versus all of the other products out there? Really thinking of those key messages you want to convey to an investor so that when they leave, you know, they're, they're on the journey already, basically. You want them to feel like I must invest in this individual, this group of individuals in this business. And now I need to figure out how I get through my internal process to make that happen. You know, that's what you want that investor to feel when they leave the room. And that really does come down to how you communicate the business and all the documentation, obviously, and things like that need to be really solid as well. But you can't replace the feeling of human energy with great documentation. And I think that's what I really learned. Like if, and in, in, you know, even with Zoom and things like that now as a Teams or whatever, you've got to learn how to do that on the phone or on a video. And I really just, it just completely changed how I understood that process. And I think as well, I think anybody who would have met me pre that kind of coaching process and after would say it was almost like a totally different pitch and person. You've talked about the importance of just being yourself. And so I'm trying to square those two things. So this transformational process that you go through from that first pitch to post-coaching, let's say, and the importance still of just being who you are in a pitch, right? And not trying to put on a show. So how do you think about those two things? Yeah, again, the best advice I had with that is that when you're being coached to do, let's just say it is a pitch and it it kind of therefore is a mini performance. That doesn't mean to say that you, you actually start acting differently to how you would. 
it kind of means you amplify the parts of you that you feel you want to amplify naturally actually and that could be in some instances like i'm you know i'm really extrovert let's just say for argument's sake and i really like to over communicate and i use hand gestures or you know whatever it might be so it will teach you how to double down and use those and make an impact with those so you're remembered for those reasons whereas you know vice versa if you're a introvert and actually you prefer to say less but really communicate key points really clearly and really well and a little bit slowly or whatever it might be you know honing in on those personality traits to just dial them up a little bit so they become really memorable because if you kind of go in it's like a conversation that you'd have in a bar or something like that sure i think if you're if it's your second third fourth time going and doing this then yeah of course you can kind of go to all connections and stuff like that but if you're meeting an investor for the first time they've got to remember you and they've got to be engaged because they do this for a living. They see 10 people a day kind of thing. So it's more about the natural dial-up of the pieces of the puzzle that, or your personality that already exist as opposed to, hey, here's the exact persona of an investable entrepreneur that doesn't exist. So feeling comfortable is really important. And, and the way to do that and the way to do all of this really is just practice. You know, once you've started to go through the cycle, it's just... You know, rehearse this pitch five, ten, a hundred times, however long it takes, and have someone on the other side to give you that constructive criticism to just to help you hone it really, really well. Did you have a couple of throwaway pitches? I mean, we never think of them as total throwaways. Obviously, you kind of want to engage every investor seriously because, you know, it's valuable time for everybody involved. But you know that the ones you might go to first are the ones that are potentially least likely to invest anyway, or they're not on your you know top tier list, so to speak. But you kind of need to do that because then you also get a sense of the questions you're going to be asked and things like that. And I think there's an element where some people say, therefore, save the absolute one you want or the ones that you want till the end which I think sometimes you can be too polished because you kind of sound like, you know, you've scripted everything effectively. So there's somewhere in the middle, I think, that you really need to hit. So it still feels natural. And that's the most important thing. It's, it can't feel manufactured. That's when you get into like, I don't know, you're, you're kind of pitching on a, on a video rather than you are actually like actually delivering something live, which is too much into the, you know, scripted audio recording type thing. What can you share around the right structure of your slide deck? Like, how many slides should be in a pitch? Like there, there is a lot of methodology and stuff people look, can look up on YouTube, right? There's the Guy Kawasaki method that people find to be effective. What have you learned? I think my best experience is there are two decks, maybe sometimes even three. So one is there's the five pager, which is, you know, a lot of people now say, just send me the deck in advance. Okay, so that's five pages that just convey really key points. So product, problem, solution, and something about the team, pretty much. I'd almost just cover those. So that's kind of the tease, if you like, the teaser. And then I think you have the actual kind of the core pitch, which is, I still say maximum of 10 slides if you can, because I've delivered some of the long ones and it just doesn't ride. So like, you're basically expanding on that story ever so slightly. And most of the time, I would not include financials in that. So yeah, I'd almost like keep it to storytelling for as long as you can. And then when someone says, hey, can we see the financials? I'd actually say you can, but I just really want to make sure before I send these to you that you are going to go through this. And, you know, depending on where you are, sometimes you can even say, well, I need to see a term sheet or an indicative term sheet before I'm going to show you financials. And it doesn't have to have a valuation or anything in it, but go to the effort of writing a term sheet so that I can at least see that you're serious. So it becomes, depends how early you want to introduce that dynamic, basically. But um, it's different. I think it's also different when you've done it a few times, you kind of know some of those ropes, if that makes sense, some of the parts of the game. Yeah. What do you think was the worst pitching experience that you had? I've had some where in some ways the meeting has started literally, you know, you're kind of doing your introductions and 
for whatever reason, whether someone said something or the vibe is off or whatever, you literally already know this is not going to happen. Or, you know, you go into a meeting and they've taken they've taken the meeting because, um, you know, they're really interested. It's not really what we normally do, but it's quite interesting. You know, that's not going to happen. And if it does, it would be an absolute miracle. And I think in, I wouldn't do this now, but in your earlier stages of like your business life, you're still going to deliver the pitch. You know, the chances are still better than like not doing it in your in your mind anyway because it's still an investor whereas you'd qualify that so early kind of second time round and say hey guys do you invest in b2b SaaS or whatever it might be because otherwise there is no point doing this at the end of the day like i'm I, you know i'm not here to be rude but i'm also i'm here for a deal <laughs> so like i've had a couple of those where you you know you've literally got four minutes in and you're like okay this is a whole hour i'm gonna do here and it's going nowhere which is very frustrating at the time looking back yeah Okay, fast forward a bit. You build the business to 3,500 plus customers globally. You build up your team. Top line is growing incrementally. Some figures suggest 150%-ish year-over-year growth. Ultimately, you attract the attention of Adobe and Adobe acquires you. So first of all, amazing. Well done. Congratulations. How did this transpire? How did this deal come together? Yeah, there's only so much I can go through into this at the moment. This is a kind of a sort of quite all heavily NDA'd as you'd expect and stuff like that with Adobe. But um, we basically, we were very good effectively in our sort of latter years, if you like, when we were running obviously Content Cal pre-Adobe of making a lot of noise about the brand in the right places. So we had a good product, you know, we had all the fundamentals, but we positioned ourselves, and we were also kind of positioned by influencers, if you like, in the space of being, and I, and I truly believe this and still do, like being the, the best content calendar product on the market you know i still think that's the case to be honest with you anyway so you know we obviously caught their attention because i think they had a very specific need and and product requirement that they wanted and we had become the player in the space for doing this you know creating a product around a calendar doesn't sound that difficult but then integrating it with social networks and having approval flows and hundreds of team members using it etc is really complicated behind the scenes we'd obviously kind of got on the right radar somewhere along the way from product teams and things like that like i say you know that was completely un- unbeknownst to us at the time we just raised our series a we were planning a series b it was all going on kind of thing like i said yeah we went we, you know we caught their attention and obviously then came through nine months later and were required by them so but one thing i've learned in the process if you put the Adobe thing to a side, like I said, because there's only so much I can talk about, but like large software companies, it's amazing. You know, they have lots of people amazingly intelligent and the resources that every startup would like desire, you know, beyond beyond contemplation. But when there's a very specific problem that needs solving, you know, sometimes it is easier for these companies to actually go out and acquire a team or a business or a platform to fix that very specific problem because it's so much faster. And I think until you go through that process, you sort of think it's uh, it's possible, but kind of a myth. And I think my biggest learned experience is now I understand how and why and things like that that happens. And you can totally see the rationale and justification for it. So just a massive learning experience to go through with them. Yeah. Is there anything looking back that you would change uh, about how this deal came together? Are you happy with the outcome? delighted i think the stress levels through the process is the only thing i'd change <laughs> but i don't think that would be realistically possible you know to be honest i mean obviously i'm working at adobe now and i'm really enjoying it and you think a lot of entrepreneurs say hang on a minute you know how could you ever work in a corporate environment etc but like I, I think i'm pretty good at adjusting to what's in front of me and kind of that can do attitude like i quite like a challenge actually in general and sometimes working in different environments comes with that so i don't think i would change anything and genuinely and i said this to the guys like if you looked at one of my really early slide decks, 
six seven years ago it had adobe on the list of potential acquirers kind of thing and so like you know it's a mini dream come true it's not even mini it's a huge dream come true so no i i genuinely wouldn't change anything to be honest no so let's switch gears for a moment to mindset which is a theme that you've talked about especially when it comes to founders the importance of getting from zero to one and two just bringing energy to an organization or to a startup and the importance of that as well. Like, how do you think about those two things and what can you share? I think I'm really, I'm learning as well, actually, as I kind of work with other founders, this is something I'm really passionate about because, well, let's touch on the mindset piece first. Like everything in a business comes down to the mindset of the leader or leaders or whoever they are. But typically, you know, if the founder is the CEO or the founder is in the most senior position in the business like your mindset will influence and will empower you or not empower you depending on how you're feeling and how you're operating to how successful you can be as an organization and it it literally all boils down to in my opinion like that as a concept because you can have the best idea you can have the best team you can have amazing things going on etc but if your mindset becomes really negative for any specific reason external to you know normal life stuff or anything like that that will flow through the, the organization at pace you know really quickly people can feel it we're all human beings there is energy in the world etc so it doesn't mean to say you have to have a hundred percent positive mindset because that's totally unrealistic but like having the right mindset geared towards the concept that you will deal with challenges and you will figure out how to and we each have our own ways of doing that and you know that challenges will come every day because that's the reason well not the reason but that happens when you start a business and being an optimist definitely plays in entrepreneur's favors in my opinion but like knowing how to kind of process compartmentalize go for a run whatever the kind of scenario is whatever the solutions is for you to deal with the stresses of the day-to-day is so important and then flowing through to your second piece around kind of energy and motivating the team and things like that if you can set the bar and that really requires you as a founder or founding team to really work on yourself as an individual to make sure you you know how to you can't fully control it but you know how to pull the right levers to get yourself into a really great place and get yourself out of negative mindsets as kind of quickly as you can but not avoiding those because you can't do that either but then once you can kind of throw that energy into a team i think some of the things i've seen where you can do that and, and you can literally change the energy of a room digitally or in a physical room you galvanize stuff in ways that you have no idea is either happening or sometimes even possible and that's not something I realized until we, you know, I studied it, to be honest, and just self-studied it. I've never done any professional training or anything like that. But as I really got to grips with my kind of understanding of how powerful mindset and energy can be and motivating for people, yeah, I'd say it's the most impactful thing in business that people don't talk about that much, to be honest. Staying in this lane for a moment, I know that you angel invest. Is there a way to suss out or vet or certain questions that you can ask of founders to determine whether or not they have the right mindset, whether or not they have this energy that you're seeking. It's very observational, I would say, for me at the moment. And funnily enough, I am trying to figure out a way where I can almost quantify it to a certain extent as like an investable point, if you like, like they kind of on this scale, whatever it might be. But I think right now it's quite instinctual. So I ask I ask a lot of questions when I invest in someone's business. And, and I don't just ask about the business. I ask quite a lot of questions about them. You can tell with certain people once you've spoken to them for like an hour or two how they overcome challenges and how they think about that. People that are, there's a couple of scales to it. Like it's almost like naivety to a certain extent 
extent, but the naive energy gets you through it, as in you've been through enough stuff day to day, so you know there are challenges of running a business, but you're furiously optimistic about how you're going to just get up every day and go. You know, you can feel that when someone's just got that relentlessness that they will not let anything get in their way, which I think I had a lot of the messaging around that from my engine investors just saying, we, we just believe that you're going to get up and no matter what's thrown at you, even if you're exhausted, you will just go at it basically. And I think trying to quantify those types of things is really important. And I think the other thing I really look for is entrepreneurs who can who are really still in learning mode, no matter what, no matter their experience, their age, etc. Like they are always open to learning. They're always open to adapting and want to do the best possible, you know. So I really want to learn how or figure out a way to quantify this in some way, shape or form. But I think at the moment it's very much conversation driven and then vibe driven, basically. Do I get the vibe that they're that kind of character? I want to come back to something that you said earlier, making noise in all the right places. So there's probably a lot of founders listening who are, say, great product designers or great technology minds, or great developers or whatever. They're very focused on product and they fall short, say, on the marketing piece. But they're thinking, you know, in order for us to get to that next level or that next milestone in our company, we really need to do a better job on the branding side, on the marketing side, getting ourselves known. In your words, you know, making noise in all the right places. So how does an organization think about doing that and or putting this into practice? I think a mantra we adopted, but we didn't, not something we talked about, but myself and Jim, who was CEO of the business we adopted was, if you build it, they will not come. The field of dreams reversal. Exactly, exactly. But like, you know, most people in their day-to-day lives are not looking out to buy B2B software or, to be honest, not really looking out to buy anything. And if they are in their professional life, it's because of their bosses ask them to or they're mandated to or they really are, in some instances, trying to find a solution to a problem in the moment. And so if you think about even just that concept, a solution to a problem in the moment, how do most people go about finding products? Well, there are two ways, realistically. One is I go to Google and I search content calendar and content cal comes up and it's the first thing on Google and therefore I have a look at that and then I have a look at some other competitors and I make a decision over time. Or another one is I've heard of this product and I think it does this and actually I've just had this problem today and I now need to go and find it again because I've already thought about, you know, I've already come across this. So you've got prompted and unprompted awareness basically of products. And so if you think about, again, those two things as well, every business to a certain extent is going to have some sort of like you know, existing demand. And you can do that just by looking on Google keyword search and figuring out how many people are searching for stuff, you know, related to your business in certain territories. So there might be a pool of 10,000 people who search for a product like yours every single month. Amazing. So making noise in the right places, well, make sure you're appearing for those places, right? But that could be paid media, that could be SEO, etc. But like looking at the channels that can mop up the existing demand doesn't mean you're going to get every customer from that 10,000 person list. But then optimizing those channels for success based on conversion rates, click-through rates, et cetera. And there's a whole sort of science and art to that. And then the piece that I think, to your point, most enterprise software businesses don't think about, and certainly not in the early stages, unprompted awareness, as in, I've heard of Content Cal, I don't know why, and then six weeks later, I want to create a content calendar for my business, and I want to do it through a piece of software instead of a spreadsheet, Oh yeah, Content Cal. I remember thinking about that. And that really requires upfront investment. So you've got to spend money on effectively creating some form of awareness of your brand and also 
not just awareness, but endorsement in some way, shape or form so that people think about you before they even realize they need you. And our most successful tactic on that at Content Cow was working with really well-known marketers, entertaining basically. And business entertainment is a theme I think is not thought about often enough. I think business entertainment is a very key theme. I think you're right. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about this thing that you wrote on LinkedIn that I thought was very cool and insightful, which is, and I'm quoting here, most people don't notice the things that sometimes eat you up at work, end quote. And I'm thinking about that statement in the context of building effective teams, in the context of where we are, I think now coming out of COVID and a lot of the uncertainty related to the economy, uh, a looming recession, all of these things. I think there's a lot of just general anxiety out there. I love this idea. I just want to turn it over to you. Like, tell the listeners a little bit about what you mean by this. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you've read that is quite amazing. That's some serious research right there to find, because that's an older post I think I put on LinkedIn as well. So massive respect for that. And it's such a great one to pull out because I think to your point around the pandemic, I think the, the pandemic and the whole working from home thing, it was the most bizarre thing. It was awful for obvious reasons. But at the same time, for probably the only time in many of our lifetimes that everybody in the world was in the same position. And like the sort of invisible empathy across the whole world, and especially in closer circles, so our friends and our families and things like that, that we were all able to appreciate just how strange, bad, sometimes good for different reasons, because, you know, it was a huge kind of break for everybody from the craziness of day to day life. Everyone was going through the same thing. And I think that was like one stage of it. And then the second stage becomes you're going through the same thing. But some people are going through it with big houses in the countryside and some people are going through it in one bedroom apartments in central London. And some people are extroverts and some people are introverts. You know, then you suddenly realize, well, we are all going through the same thing, but we're all having these most very, very different. And in some instances, you know, people were some people loved lockdowns and some people absolutely really struggled in them. Some people completely lost their jobs, you know. So it was the same thing, but everything was so different. And the reactions of human beings still in this still macro like shared experience were vastly different. And I think my understanding, to be honest with you, of people's different people's mindsets, how people think, how people react to adversity, how people react to like being able to interact with other human beings that all the lack of interaction as well and things like that. My world just exploded in trying to like how to understand this. I think it really made a lot of people in my circles anyway really appreciate how different, you know, people's lived experiences and therefore opinions and things like that are. But also appreciation for it, you know, because we're not all the same. We are all different. We do all think slightly differently, even though there are circles that think similar. My view of it is become never assume like anything really that because someone's doing really well at work, let's just say, that they're actually okay. Or the other way around, they're actually not doing that great at work, but actually they're having a great time in their day-to-day life kind of thing. And work's just not motivating them right now or whatever it might be. And so I just feel like, that you know, trying to understand that more and more as we spend theoretically, definitely professionally in my world anyway, less time physically together and therefore less social water cooler discussions or chats in the bar to figure out what's going on um, in people's lives and stuff like that or stuff you overhear and stuff just to be able to like read between the lines like that doesn't really happen anymore so it's almost like taking I always 
use the phrase extreme ownership. I think it's a Jocko Willenick or someone else's like phrase, but like taking extreme ownership of your what you're understanding what you're putting out in the world, but your understanding of how other people's energies and things like that. You talk about energy a lot, but just like how that could be so vastly different to what you actually see. I've just become much more conscious about human beings, I think, and, and where people are mentally and physically as well, you know, just and how that ties together for work, especially. Alex, thanks so much for the time. Congrats on the sale to Adobe. Wishing you the very best in your next chapter over there. Where can people learn more about Content Cal and, and obviously where can they connect with you on social? You can learn more about Content Cal, just contentcal.com and Content Cal on most social channels. We're not as active on there as we used to be, but all the kind of relevant information is on all of those. I'd also check out Adobe Express if you have a chance to do that. That's the product we've um, been integrating with at Adobe. So there's lots of cool stuff on there. And then I'm Alex Packham on basically every social channel. That's very easy to find me on most of those. And I publish most on LinkedIn, actually, of all channels. So yeah, come and check me out on there. Alex, real pleasure, man. Thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Yeah, I've had a great time. Thank you, Adam. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. E2 is brought to you by Scriberbase. Build your subscription business and thrive. More at Scriberbase.com. Want to start your own podcast in 2022? Visit e2coursehub.com for more info on our step-by-step guide to bring your show to market. If you like what you heard today, don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your audio. You can also visit us at glow.fm forward slash E2 to become a supporter. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Electric acid. Electric acid.